Our text this morning comes from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 17 through 20. Ephesians 1, 17 through 20. This is the word of God to us this morning. We pray that he would tune our hearts to it and that we would profit by it. Kind of picking up in the middle of a sentence here. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Lord, we ask this morning that you would make your book live for us. We pray that you would show us yourself and your word and that you would show us ourselves and your word. We pray that the eyes of our hearts would be open this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the blue whale is the largest animal alive on Earth today. And for many years, scientists who studied blue whales were puzzled because the whales seemed to be mute. All other whales use songs to communicate with one another, but no one has ever heard a blue whale singing. And we thought that that was the case, we thought that they were the anomaly, until we developed technology that could detect frequencies which were too low for the human ear to hear. And then it was discovered that blue whales actually do indeed have songs, but the songs simply can't be heard by us. They are far too low in frequency for our ears to be picking up. And because these whale songs are at such a low frequency, they are very powerful and they can reach over very long distances, up to thousands of miles. So a blue whale could call from a harbor in New York and be heard in an English port. This amazing power had been present throughout all of the ages, but it was undetected because we who were observing our senses have been too limited to register it. Part of the problem with our human life as it's lived now on earth in this fallen, physical, and limited, and handicapped on all fronts sort of situation, the effects of sin, and part of that, part of that result of that is that you don't know what you don't know. And you also don't know what you need to know. And you are probably moving through life as though you do know what you need to know. And you may be able to navigate around town okay like that. You may be able to get by in terms of buying your groceries or doing your job. But where God is concerned, not knowing what you need to know and not knowing what you don't know can be extremely costly. It can even cost you your soul. And that's why Paul prays, as he does, for the believers in these Ephesian 
churches. He prays that God would give the Ephesians a spirit of wisdom and of revelation of the knowledge of God. And we talked a couple of weeks ago about something we call the noetic effects of sin, about how the fallen nature and the devil work together to blind our minds to the things of God to the point where we are unable to see spiritual truth and respond to it correctly unless God sends the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit comes and removes our blinders. He removes the veil, is the word that Paul uses to speak of this blindness in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And then we're enabled to come to Christ because we see Christ for the first time and we see how beautiful he is and how wonderful the free offer of the gospel is. But even after we come to Christ, we've still got a lot of cobwebs on our eyes. And the Spirit has to keep opening our eyes further and further so that we can see the truth and be changed by the truth. And that is, in large part, what being transformed by the renewing of your mind is all about. And that's what Paul mentions in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Do not be conformed to this world. Literally, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. And that's also what Paul is talking about here. These Ephesian believers, they had more growing to do in Christ. There were sin problems and, and outages in the fellowship that needed to be addressed. But the key to their growth was not for Paul to simply tell them to start doing some things and to stop doing other things. Their key to their growth lay in seeing the truth as it is in Jesus more clearly. And so the first battle that Christ must win in order to conquer a person is the battle for the mind. Now, let me explain why. All of your freely chosen actions and all of your freely chosen decisions are based on what you think is true. They're based on how you look at the world. But a lot of how we look at the world and what we think is true is not examined. We never bring it out into the light and go, okay, does this actually the way things are? We just assume that what we think is true is true, and we just assume that the world actually is the way we believe that it is and, and assume that it is, and many of these ideas, many of these assumptions uh, about the world come to us from our family. We're born with certain, uh, in a certain family structure, and the values and what we think is true is just kind of inculcated into us from childhood on up, and we just assume that because mom and dad and grandma and grandpa looked at things this way, and I look at things this way, that that must be the way things are. And very often they're not. Some of our distortions of reality come from our experiences. Others come from our peers, what our friends think is true. Others come from our education. And still others are put forth by our culture and the media and music and things like that. And we don't examine them very carefully. We don't stop to see if they're true. And very often, we don't even know that we have these assumptions. They become, you know, if you wear glasses, you don't see your glasses after a while. You just see through your glasses, and they become the default. You don't pay any attention to them. Well, these things that we think are true that may or may not be become our glasses, and they determine how we see the world. We're not even aware of them. But these assumptions determine how we experience reality 
as individuals. They determine what we decide is good and bad, what we will do, what we won't do. In other words, what you think is true will determine your ability to see what is actually true. And this is one of the devil's primary tools for controlling the world. The devil is always after ideas, and the devil is always after words. And if he can control the ideas that people think are true, and the definitions of the words that are used to express those ideas, then his work is largely done, and he can sit back, and he can just let chaos unfold, and it will, and it does. And a large part of what I do as a pastor, both in counseling one-on-one and in teaching and preaching the Word of God, is basically identifying and challenging people's distortions of truth and reality. A big part of my job is saying, this action makes sense to you because you think that this and this and this is true. And if you adjust your life and your thinking to match what God says is true, then you will come to realize that no, this and this and this are false, and God says this and this and this. And if you adjust your thinking, it will solve almost all of these problems that you are experiencing. Let me give you some, uh, just one real life example. Um, Dallas Willard has said that success in the evangelical church is universally measured by what he calls the ABCs, attendance, buildings, and cash, okay? You have a successful church, you have succeeded as a pastor, as elders, as a church member, you have a successful church if you have a lot of butts in seats on Sunday morning, and if you have a large, attractive building, and if you have a big budget that's supported by lots of giving. And if you have those three things, then by, this, by the standards of the evangelical church today, you have a, a successful church. And a successful church is one that God must be pleased with, so therefore you're doing it right. And if you don't have those things, you must be doing something wrong, and you're a failure, and God is displeased. The problem is that is absolutely antithetical to the spirit and the teaching of the whole New Testament. By that definition, Jesus himself was a complete and utter failure, wasn't he? Because when you look at John 6, for instance, you see him saying things that people following him didn't like. And John 6.66, it's the only 666 in the Bible, John 6.66 reads, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And if you know John 6, you know that he immediately turns to the 12 and he says to them, you guys want to leave too? And they look at him and go, yeah, kind of, but where else are we going to go? You have the words of life. So he didn't have crowds for very long, especially towards the end. Um, at the end of his life, most of his followers actually deserted him. Not only did Jesus not have a big building to meet with his followers in, he didn't even have a house of his own. And he was so poor and his mission was so underfunded that he had to do a miracle just to pay his taxes one day. So what is the definition of success then 
for the evangelical church. The New Testament's message is that a successful church is one that is producing abnormally loving, joyous, gracious people in inexplicably high numbers. That's a successful church. A, a people who are possessed by love of God that results in the joyous obedience to God that we call holiness, and a love for people that allows them to lay down their need to have their own way because they're confident of God's care and God's provision for them. Therefore, they're free to do whatever is best for other people without worrying about the cost. And they're filled with joy, no matter what the circumstances are, because they know from experience that under God, walking with God, everything is literally okay. Nothing irredeemable can happen to them. And the Bible calls those people disciples. So according to Jesus, a church that is recognized that producing these sorts of people is actually its main goal and, and puts in place intelligent programs and practices designed to move the whole congregation towards that goal and with the Spirit's help reliably produces such people, that is a successful church. But because we have certain ideas about what success is, we go off on a tangent. And the whole church goes off on a tangent. And discipleship is haphazard at best. By that definition, how many successful churches are there in this world, in our day? And you can see how if you think attendance buildings and cash are the mark of a successful church, you'll build and staff and program your church one way. And if you think that a successful church is one that's producing people who are like Jesus, you'll build and staff and program another way. You can see that, can't you? So we're after what Romans 12 calls the renewing of our minds in order to understand what God's will is. Or another way of putting it, we're after a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of our hearts open. Now, what is it that Paul wants us to understand and to experience as a result of our opened eyes? Well, there are three things that he mentions here in Ephesians 1, three things that will challenge our false assumptions about what is true and what is good. And if we have eyes to see and ears to hear, they'll change the way we look at things and that will change the way we behave. Three things that will make following Christ closely seem like the only rational thing to do. The first thing, says Paul, is the hope to which he has called you. The hope to which he has called you. Now, I've told you before, but I'll say it again. Hope in the New Testament is not some future good thing that might or might not happen, and you sure hope it does. Hope in the New Testament is God's ironclad promise that you will receive the good things that he has promised, and you must simply wait for them with patience because they will be coming. It's infallible. It's true. And before we look at what God promises, I want you to notice something very interesting. I, I want you to notice how the hope comes to us. What is the, how does the hope come to us? It says God calls us 
to this hope. The hope of your calling. Now that word call is an interesting word. That word call has two connotations. It refers to a summons by a superior or by one in authority. You might, for instance, in our day, receive a little thing in the mail from the county or the state or the federal court system, and it's a summons for jury duty. The letter comes in the mail and it says, you, under name, or undersigned here, you, be at this location at this time on this date, under penalty of law, if you don't show up. And you're supposed to go. And the county or the state or the federal government has the authority to summon you and tell you, you must go, and you better go if you get it, right? Now, usually they've been given that authority because the thing that they're summoning you to do is something that you would prefer not to do, and so they have to back it up with a threat of punishment. But the word can also be used of an invitation to something wonderful and something exclusive, something that you wouldn't get to attend under normal circumstances, but someone who is important has noticed you and wants to give you the blessing of inviting you to this wonderful event. So hope has an element of coercion and hope has an element of, or I'm sorry, of calling has an element of coercion and it has an element of invitation. And both senses are relevant here. God's calling is authoritative. His spirit goes forth and says, you have an appointment with me at a certain time and a certain place and you will keep it. And then God takes it upon himself to make sure that we do keep the appointment and he's actually arranged your whole life from before the foundation of the world and the most important coordinate in that life is this moment where he summons you to himself. Do you remember the parable of the wedding banquet in Luke chapter 14? The invited guests don't show. They send lame excuses. And the master sends his servants out to the highways and to the hedgerows to find people to come to the banquet. And his orders are, quote, compel them to come in. The Greek word means to require or necessitate by force. That's Luke 14, chapter 23. Compel them to come in. C.S. Lewis writes in the passage about his uh, conversion in his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, He says, you must picture me alone in that room in Magdalen, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed, perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. I did not see then what is now the most shining and obvious thing, the divine humility which will accept a convert even on such terms. The prodigal son at least walked home on his own two feet, but who can duly adore that love which will open the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance of escape. The words compelle entrare, compel them to come in, 
have been so abused by wicked men that we shudder at them. But properly understood, they plumb the depths of divine mercy. The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men, and his compulsion is our liberation. So there's compel them to come in. Compel them to come into the marriage supper of the Lamb, the great banquet, the heavenly banquet that will go on forever. And yet, his call is also an invitation. It's an invitation to everlasting delight. It's an invitation to the most desirable, the most exclusive party in the history of the universe. And in Matthew twenty-two fourteen, 14, Jesus says, for many are called, but few are chosen. That's what Matthew says in the same version of the parable. So there's a divine and an irrevocable calling to something, something wonderful that isn't apparent to our eyes yet, to a future hope. What, what is the hope then to which God calls us? Well, we can sum it up in one word. What is the hope of our calling? The hope is literally everything, everything. That's what, that's what it says in Romans 8.32. What then shall we say? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? All things. All of your fondest hopes and all of your fondest dreams, which in this world unfailingly disappoint you. Either you don't get them and you're crushed or you do get them and you find out that it was a sucker's bargain. All of the things you had and lost and are so bitter about losing, all of the things will be given to you, imperishable and eternal, and they will be yours forever. Life, health, pleasure, joy, love, acceptance, recognition, fame, satisfaction, abundance, freedom, wealth, glory, everything is yours forever. Without being tinged and without being spoiled by any grief or any loss or any imperfection, that is the hope to which you are called. That is that thing which God called you and brought you into existence and then brought you into his kingdom to give you. That is the hope of your calling. And Paul says you need to have your eyes open so that you see that, like literally see it and know that it's real and it takes the sting out of the world when you know that because this world is never designed to satisfy. Not permanently, but that is. And it's just a short while away. What's the second thing that Paul says we need to have our eyes open about? Riches the riches of his glorious inheritance. Romans 8, 17 says, we are fellow heirs with Christ. We are united with Christ, and therefore we are fellow heirs with Christ. Therefore, whatever Christ gets, we get. Now, we don't know all that that means, but we are told certain things in Scripture. We know, for instance, that we shall see God. We shall see God. Now, some people think, well, why, why in the world would that be something that I look forward to? Well, just think about it for a minute. Think about all the things and all the money and all the time and energy that, that people spend in just going to see things. 
I mean, my family and I took my family on Saturday or Friday, and we went down to the Carnegie Museum because there's a, an, ex, a, an exhibit on Pompeii. They've got artifacts from Pompeii that was destroyed by Vesuvius, Mount Vesuvius in 79 AD. And I've been fascinated with Pompeii for decades since I learned about it in National Geographic magazine. And so I go, and here are these things here. And we just wander around, and we look at them, and then we read about them. And we, hey, did you see this over here? I mean, look, th these people were amazing craftsmen. These are not primitive people at all. The, everything they had was just beautifully done. Amazing workmanship. It's amazing that they could do it without machines. They just did it all by hand, and it was just absolutely gorgeous. Some little guy spent hours and hours gluing little tiny pieces of tile to form not just a picture, but a picture that had light and dark and shadows and texture. It was just amazing. You think about 2,000 years ago, somebody laying on a floor with a pair of tweezers, putting those things in according to a design. And we go and we look at that. People, people go and they look at the Grand Canyon. And they travel to Paris and they want to go look at the Eiffel Tower. And they go to England and they want to see Buckingham Palace. And they go to Africa and they want to see elephants in their natural environment or some great flowing river, gorge in Zambia or something like that. People love to look at things. And looking at things gives them pleasure. Well, beholding God is the ultimate pleasure. Beholding God is actually the most pleasant thing imaginable, the most thrilling thing imaginable. This God, Jesus said nobody's ever seen him. He dwells in unapproachable light. You can't look at him and live. And yet he also says, Christian, you shall see him. You shall see God. Not only that, we'll, we'll see Jesus. We'll see his Christ seated at his right hand. And we shall be like him. We shall be like him. Both in body and in character, we will be like this Christ. It says in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we shall be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And, and it will be not a solo activity. It will be a communal activity. We will enjoy this inheritance together. It won't be a private party. We'll celebrate together forever. I mean, how many of you would like to go to the Super Bowl? Just, I would. Everybody give me a hand. Yeah. How many of you would like to go to the Super Bowl and have the whole stadium be empty except for you? Right? Wouldn't that be like the worst Super Bowl ever? You want to go and you want to enjoy it with thousands and thousands of screaming maniacs who are delighted to be there with you. That's what makes the experience. And you start, I, I, the only NFL game I've ever been to in my whole life, I took my nephew to a few weeks ago, and it, it was the Steelers, I'm sorry. Um, but we, I got, spent a ton of money on this gift for my nephew, and we got really good seats. We were seven rows back from the end zone. I mean, you could just, right there. 
And, and we're surrounded by people all around us, some of whom were rooting for the Broncos, and we were kind to them, but not too kind. But the, you start talking to the people around you, and you start talking about plays and history and, and the players, and, and you kind of develop this kind of sense of camaraderie, and it's like, hey, we're all cheering at the same time. And, and, and it was just, that, that's part of the experience. Well, in heaven, you're going to behold the greatest spectacle ever known, God, and his son, Jesus Christ, with a multitude from every tribe, nation, language, and tongue who is just as excited as you to be there. And you'll be on your feet cheering. And you'll be amazed. And it will be fun. It will be an occasion of great joy. There will be a roar from this crowd as the lamb stands and opens his seals and does all the things that the Lamb does. Last of all, God wants us to know more and more about his power. His power. The immeasurably great power which he exercises towards us. Now, we're going to talk about this in detail next week. Uh, so for this week, I just want to touch on it just very briefly. But if you think about the three things that Paul said here, the, the, the hope of your calling, that call, and the, the riches of your inheritance, and then the power. Well, God's call originates in and looks back to the beginning, the time before time. God's inheritance looks forward to the end, the time after time, the return and the visible reign of Christ when everything that's wrong is set right and the dead in Christ are raised up and there's no more sorrow and no more suffering and no more tears and no more evil and Satan and all his works are completely destroyed. So the, the call looks back, the inheritance looks forward, the power covers everything in between. The power of God is that which connects the call at the beginning of time to its consummation. That this God who knows everything from before the foundation of the world decreed everything and causes whatever happens to happen in one way or another, either directly or secondarily, that this God is exercising all of that power to bring about the end that he has designed it. God's power spans the whole period in between. And our inheritance rests upon his power. Our salvation rests upon his power. We will be kept in this world by his power. And that's true whether you get a divorce or cancer. That's true whether you lose your job. That's true even if you get a great job. The whole thing is under his control. The whole thing from start to finish is an exercise of his power. He is exercising all power over all things for your sake. You are the great object of his attention and affection. You are the reason that he brought this world into existence. You are the reason why he will judge it one day. You, his power exists and is exercised for you. 
And that's true whether you believe it or not. But if you believe it, it changes the way you look at things because you realize then that you don't need to fear anything. You don't need to worry about anything. You don't need to have anxiety about anything. Because this power is here for you, not in a general way, but in a particular way. This God who gives you your next breath, who knows your thoughts, who knows the words before they're on your tongue and knows them completely, who has ordained the number of your days and set the day of your death, who gives you the ability even to blink your eyes and gives you your next heartbeat and is intimately involved in everything that happens to you. He knows the numbers of the hairs on your head. No bird falls out of the sky to the ground except that he wills it. And that's why Jesus says, you're okay. If you're with me and you're in me and you're following me, you're okay. Well, I don't feel okay. It doesn't matter. You're okay. Yeah, but I'm in the hospital and it hurts. I know. You're okay. I don't know what's going to become of me. I don't know if I'm going to live longer than my money. I know. You're okay. I'm worried about my business. It's not going well. I know. You're okay. I've got you. I am exercising all authority in heaven and on earth for you. You're okay. You don't need to fear anyone except God. And if you fear God in the right way, in the healthy way, you'll never fear anyone or anything again. It's as simple as that. The story is told one time of a bishop in the ancient church. I can't remember who it was. And he uh, was called to account by a, by a very high political leader in the Roman Empire. And he basically just said, no. I, I know you want me to do this and this and this and think this and say this. No. And by the way, you're wicked and you're going to burn in hell unless you turn and accept Jesus. And the, the ruler looked back at him and said, I'm not accustomed to being talked to this way. And the bishop said, well, apparently you've never met a bishop before. And that's your birthright as a Christian. The world says, we want you to think this. We go, uh-uh. We want you to say this or not say that. We go, uh-uh. No. The world says, we're going to punish you. We'll take away your money. We'll take away your job. We'll take away your Twitter account. And we say, okay, not going to do it. And now I'm going to turn around and pronounce God's judgment on you, Mr. Worldling. You have a, a God who you've offended, and you're going to face him one day. You are under his wrath. Turn. Oh, that makes him really happy when you do stuff like that. That's, you can do that. You can do that because you are backed by the biggest player in existence, Almighty God and his beloved son, Jesus Christ. You never have to fear anyone or anything again. It's as simple as that. If the eyes of your heart are open, you'll know who you are. You will say, I am an elect child of God. I was chosen from before the foundation of the world. That's who I am. I may be poor. I may be unattractive. 
I may be not very educated or not very intelligent. Doesn't matter. I'm an elect child of God, chosen in him before the foundation of the world, and his call is irrevocable. I have tremendous dignity. If you could see what I will be one day, you would be strongly tempted to fall down and worship me. You know who you are. You'll know where you're going. You will say, one day I will receive an inheritance. You think you're something, jetting around town in your Ferrari. One day I will receive an inheritance that makes yours look like a kid's allowance. And I will have riches and wealth and honor and glory and fame such as you cannot imagine. And it will fulfill every need and every desire exceedingly and abundantly. And then you'll know the resources that are available to you while you're waiting to receive your inheritance. And you will say, God is exercising his mighty, infinite power on my behalf constantly. He knows it all. He knows more than me. He's not concerned. He doesn't wake up in the morning, put his feet on the floor, look down from heaven and go, I didn't know that was going to happen. You are fine. You are blessed. You are bulletproof until the day God decrees the bullet. And then you're out of here. Stonewall Jackson, Civil War hero, was conducting a battle one time on horseback, and he was riding back and forth behind his troops, encouraging them and commanding them and managing the battle, and the bullets are just whistling everywhere, and he is completely unconcerned. And he finishes with the battle, and he wins the battle, and that night he's asked, how is it that you live this way? A certain captain asked him this, and he said, Captain, my religious beliefs teach me to feel as safe in battle as in bed. God has fixed the time of my death. I do not concern myself with that, but to always be ready whenever it may overtake me. That is the way all men should live. And if they did, all men would be equally brave. You see, when you know the truth and you believe the truth, it changes how you behave. Not from the outside in, but from the inside out. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer.